verses 1 through 8. Paul writes to the believers at Philippi, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You for the example of Jesus Christ set before us in this passage. There is no greater example for us than this one. Help us as we seek to follow this example. Help us to see what Jesus did for us so that we can walk in His footsteps. It's in His name we pray again. Amen. Maybe seated. Church at Philippi was a wonderful church. Paul loved this church. He said that God could testify that he had great affection for them. And there's many reasons for this. Above all, um, they were partners with him in the gospel. Uh, practically speaking, they supported him financially in his ministries. And the book of Philippi, or excuse me, the book of Philippians, is basically his thank you letter to these Christians. Uh, but like any church, the church at Philippi was not a perfect church. They too had some flaws. Uh, for example, this church had some selfish people in it. Surprise, surprise, right? That's why in verse 4 he exhorted them to look not only to their own interests, but also to the interest of others. Um, there's also evidence that there was grumbling and complaining in this church. In 2.14, Paul told them, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Uh, there was division in this church. And in 4.2, he pleaded with two ladies, Yodia and Synecdoche, to get along with each other. That's pretty surprising because you have to remember when Paul's letter arrived at Philippi, someone would stand up and they would basically read the letter. And imagine the reaction of Euodia and Synecdoche when they were singled out. It'd be like me standing up here this morning and say, okay, now you two over there. Yes, you and you guys need to get along with each other. Can you imagine everybody else going, whoa. Nate's even getting nervous because I'm pointing over in her direction. <laughs> Point somewhere else. Point on the other side over there. <laughs> uh, but this division was not just the cause of a couple of ladies in the church. It actually seems to be more pervasive than that because Paul wants the whole church collectively to get along. And that's very obvious from what he says in verse 2 of chapter 2 where he says, Complete my joy by being 
of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So this is just Paul's way of using repetition of saying, come together and be like-minded. Have the same mind. Have the same purpose. Have the same love for one another. So obviously, this means that they were of a different mind. They had a different love. They weren't coming together. And Paul wants them to come together. He's pleading for them to come together. And that's really the heart of his concern in this passage that we're looking at. He wants these believers to come together. And they should be able to come together. Notice what he says in verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, literally, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, then be one. Be united. You see what he's saying? If you have encouragement from Christ, if you have comfort from love, if, if you have participation in the Spirit, literally that's fellowship, that's our Greek word, uh, koinonia. If you have any of that and the implication, you do, then you should be able to come together as a body and be united to one another. In other words, Paul is saying right up front, you really have no excuse for not being united to one another, for not being together as a body. There's no excuse because of everything that you have in Jesus Christ. Now, having said that he wants them to be united, he goes on from there to show them how they can be united. He gets very practical. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul says, I want you to be united. And it's interesting, in verse 2 he says, this would make my joy complete. <laughs> if, if you guys could just get along, I would be so happy. Let me tell you, as a pastor, I can understand that. <laughs> if we could just all get along as a church, if we could be united, oh, I'd be so happy. That's what Paul is saying here. I'd be so happy. And now he's saying, for that to happen, this is what you need to do. And he gets very practical with his commands here. And basically, we have four commands. Two are negative. Two are positive. The first two deal with pride, basically. And the second two deal with humility. Negatively, he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Now, I think we can understand how conceit relates to pride. We often talk about people who are conceited, who are full of themselves, who are arrogant. For us, that's basically a synonym for pride. Um, but I actually think the first um, thing item that he mentions here is even a better description of pride. Do nothing from rivalry. In other words, don't be competing with one another. And that really is the essence of pride. This is what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. He says, Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. 
It is competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. And I think that's very important. I think that really gets at the essence of pride. We are full of ourselves because we have more of something than another person. And that will kill the body of Christ. Because you will then naturally look down on others. You will naturally stop serving others. Because after all, you're up here and they're down here, so they should be serving you. And while we might not think that um, in our minds consciously, subconsciously, it might be really amazing how we look down on others because we think we're better for whatever reason. And we have to be real careful of that. There can be this current running through our minds of pride that causes us to look down on others and we're not even aware that it's there. But it can come out subtly and it can come out in strong ways. It can come out in terrible ways. So Paul says, do nothing from rivalry, do nothing from conceit. So what is the answer to pride? Obviously, the answer to pride is humility. And Paul goes on and he says, but, here's the contrast, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What does humility do? First of all, humility considers others more significant than yourself. Let's say you're at a Christmas party and you're enjoying goodies and you're enjoying a pie, for example, and there's only one piece left. And some others would like a piece of pie. If you consider others more significant than yourselves, what will you do? You will let them have that piece of pie, right? Now, I also want you to notice very carefully what Paul says. This is important. He says, count others more significant than yourselves. He doesn't say they are. He says, count them. Consider them more significant than yourself, whether they are or not. You don't have to go through your mind, well, is this person more significant than me? That doesn't matter. He said, just put that aside and just consider everybody else more significant than yourself. Let me make the illustration even more obvious. Let's say that Norbert is doing jail ministry. And after the jail ministry, they have pie. And there's only one piece of pie left. But Norbert and many other people want that piece of pie. What should Norbert as a good Christian do? Consider others more significant than yourself. Let them have the pie. In that case, let's imagine that in this jail ministry, Norbert really is ministering to the dregs of society. 
Imagine, if you will, whoever you consider to be the worst people in society. Serial murderers, rapists, child molesters. God says to Norbert, consider others. Consider these inmates, Norbert, more significant than yourself. Let them have the pie. That's what God is saying. And then going to the second step, which really relates to the first, not only consider others more significant than yourselves, but look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. When you consider others more significant than yourself, you think about other people. You don't just think about yourself. You know, I can remember uh, going through the book of Philippians many years ago before I ever came to this church in a Bible study. And I remember coming to this passage, and this very simple thought hit me as I was going through this passage. God is continually, again and again and again, trying to get us to get beyond ourselves. Here's the truth. We are all, by nature, self-absorbed, self-occupied, self-concerned, in a word, selfish. That's just who we are. And God is saying to us, don't just look to your own interest. Can you think about other people? Think about what they might be going through. Think about what they might be feeling. Think about how maybe you can help your brother or sister over there. Think about how maybe you can help your neighbor. Can you get beyond yourself once in a while? That's what God is saying to us. Because we really are self-absorbed. We really are a self-centered people. God wants us to get beyond ourselves. So Paul gets very practical here. He says, I want you to humble yourself. Consider others more significant than yourself. I want you to serve other people. And if that would happen in the body of Christ, think of the unity that could happen. If we were all concerned about serving each other, if we were all looking out for one another, think of the unity that we can enjoy. Now, from those commands, Paul goes on to what I want to call the motivation. And in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let me make it real simple. This is what Paul is saying, kids. Be like Jesus. I want you to be like Jesus. By the grace of God and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, I want you to be like Jesus. Well, how was Jesus? Let's ask this question. Was Jesus given to rivalry? Was Jesus given to competition? Imagine the, the Trinity and eternity past competing with one another. Can you imagine God the Father and God the Son saying to one, I'm better than you. No, I'm stronger than you. Can you imagine that taking place in the Godhead? Never took place. Look at verse 6 who though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, first of all, let me point out that this is a strong statement about the deity of Christ. Paul says very clearly, he was in the form of God. The NIV translates this, 
He was in very nature God. Yet, he did not consider equality with God, God the Father, something to be grasped. Now, this only makes sense if Jesus is equal with the Father. Imagine Vice President Joe Biden saying, I do not consider equality with Barack Obama a thing to be grasped. We would say, well, of course not, because he's the president and you're not. See, Jesus is equal with the Father. If he was less than the Father, then we would say, well, of course he shouldn't consider equality with something to be grasped, because he's not equal with the Father. So this only makes sense if he is equal with the Father. So this is a very strong statement about the deity of Christ. He is in very nature God. The Father is omnipotent. Jesus is omnipotent. The Father knows all things. Jesus knows all things. The Father is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. Just go right on down the list. Every attribute that God the Father has, God the Son has. Because they are equal. That's why they are both deserving of worship. But what does the passage say? Even though he's equal with the Father, he doesn't consider that something to be grasped. Something to hold on to. Imagine this conversation taking place among the Godhead. The Father says to the Son, I want you to go to earth so that you can redeem mankind. But in order for that to happen, you're going to have to take upon yourself a human body so that you can experience pain, so that you can suffer and ultimately die. And imagine the Son saying to the Father, Hey, I'm equal with you. <laughs> I'm equal with you. Wait, wait a second. That's not fair. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Why not? Because he was humble. And the son said, I'll give up my rights as God. Now, he doesn't give up being God. Don't misunderstand. He gives up the rights of being God. All the advantages of being God. He gives all that up so that he can become a human being. Because he's not given to rivalry. How about conceit? Paul told the Philippians, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Was Jesus conceited? And that word conceit in the Greek is really interesting. It literally means vain or empty glory. Empty glory. Notice what verse 7 says. But made himself nothing. Isn't that something? Made himself nothing. Theologians refer to this as the kenosis passage, and it comes from the Greek word kenosis, which means to empty himself. Literally, what it says here is that Jesus emptied himself. Now, again, we have to be very careful. It doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his deity. Otherwise, he would cease to be God. What he emptied himself of was the rights of being God, the glory of the angels staying in heaven. He gave all that up so that he could come to earth. He gave up the rights that were his because he's God. And he made himself nothing. The exact opposite of a person who's conceited. We're all trying to be something. And we want to show people that we're something. 
Here is Jesus, the ultimate something, making Himself nothing. That's Jesus. I'll go to earth and I'll become a nobody. What kind of nobody? A nobody who would just be servant. Taking the form of a servant. It's not a good translation because really, what that word is, is slave. And I'll tell you the same thing I told my kids when we were going through this passage. The commentators are afraid to translate it literally. The word is slave. The Greek word is doulos. It means slave. The word for servant, we get the word deacon from that. It's not the word for serve. It is the word for slave. And that's very significant because it tells us about the condescension of Christ. It tells us about the humility of Christ. Here is Jesus, God Almighty, saying, I'll let that go. And I'll come down to earth. I'll become a nobody. What kind of nobody? The kind of nobody who gets down on his knees and washes dirty feet. Remember John 13? When disciples came together for a dinner? And they were supposed to wash their feet because they were dirty. That was beneath them. That was the job that was given, not just to an ordinary slave, but the lowest of slaves. None of the disciples were about to wash the feet of another disciple. That was beneath them. That was a job for nobodies. And here's Jesus. He says, I'll be a nobody. Jesus takes off His outer garment wraps a towel around his waist, grabs a basin of water, and washes the disciples' feet. The ultimate nobody. There, there wasn't a lower rung on the ladder. In the first century, a slave was as low as you could go. And a slave that washed feet was as low as you can go. Here's Jesus Christ, as high as He could possibly be, going as low as you could go becoming a slave. Why? Why would He do that? That's why He came. Mark 10.45 Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came. So that He could serve. And literally, so that He could serve to death. Why would He do that? Why would he do that? Because he's God. Let me tell you how D.A. Carson and many commentators interpret this passage. Beginning at verse 6, the ESV has who, though he was in the form of God, D.A. Carson and other commentators think it shouldn't be translated though, but it should be translated because. Who, because he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, the point is because Jesus was God, he serves. This is what God does. And this is what makes Christianity unique from all the other religions in the world. Look at all the religions in the world and you will notice that their followers serve their gods. They serve their deities. Now, you might be confused because you think, well, aren't we servants of God? Paul calls himself a servant of God. And actually, he calls himself a slave of God. And yes, there is one sense in which we are servants of God. But do we serve God? 
Does God need our service? Consider Acts 17. In Acts 17, beginning at verse 24, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. God is not served by us in the sense that we give God something. What can we possibly give God? Imagine you were looking for a gift for God. You're going to the store and saying, no, I want to get a gift for God. And, and sometimes you, you've said this with certain people. What do you give the person who has everything? God literally has everything. <laughs> there, there's nothing that we could possibly give Him that He would say, oh, this is great. I've always wanted one. He has everything. So we don't serve Him in the sense that we give Him anything or add anything to Him. He needs nothing from us. And then Paul says, since He Himself gives to all man life and breath and everything else. We have a God who serves us. He's serving you right now at this very moment. We talked about this in Sunday school. You just took a breath. I heard it. You just took another breath. How were you able to do that? Because God is upholding you right now at this very moment. God right now is serving you. That's why you're alive. That's why you haven't died yet because He's upholding your life. That's why you're breathing. That's why you're thinking. That's why you're feeling. Because God is serving you. And even when we quote-unquote serve, we do it in the strength that God provides. (laughs) That's what we say almost all the time when we pray before our service. Strengthen us so that we can serve the strength that you provide so that you're glorified. So even the strength that we have supposedly serving God comes from God. God is the ultimate servant. He serves us every single day. Why? Because He's a humble God. Have you ever thought about that? We serve a humble God. Right now in Sunday school, we're going through the attributes of God. And I've, I've looked at many lists of the attributes of God. You know, and, and we see them all. You know, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the patience of God, you know, the sovereignty of God, the eternality of God, you know, the infinity of God. And right on down the list, I've never seen the humility of God. And I was thinking about it. Well, why is that? Perhaps we, we think that humility has a negative connotation. In in Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to Me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus described Himself as as humble. He, He submits. Now, it's hard to think of the Father submitting because the Father doesn't submit. The Son submits. But the Father serves us. This, this is the work of the triune God. Our salvation is the ultimate service of God. And that's the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God serving us. Think about our salvation. Why, why are we saved? Why did Jesus come from heaven to earth? So that He could die on the cross, redeeming us. Verse 8, And being found in human form, He humbled Himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So maybe if you want to look at Jesus condescending and lowering himself and lowering himself, maybe there is a lower rung on the ladder than being that of a slave. Being that of a slave who would give his life for another person. So let's try to picture this conversation again taking place in heaven. The Father says to the Son, now I'm going to create a world and I'm going to create human beings, but they're going to rebel, they're going to sin, but we're going to redeem them. And we're going to redeem them by you going down to earth, becoming one of those mortals, taking upon yourself flesh and blood, so that you can die on the cross. And while you're hanging on that cross, I'm going to pour out my wrath upon you that they deserve, so that they can be forgiven, so that they can be redeemed. And this conversation didn't take place, but imagine the son looking at the father saying, Father, why would we do that? And why would I be willing to do that? And the Father would say, because we're humble. And we look not only to our own interests, but we also look to the interests of others. We are humble. So we consider others more significant than ourselves. Jesus considered us more significant than Himself. We who really are the dregs of society, the scum of the earth. Jesus considered us on the cross. He said, I'm going to consider them better than myself. And I'm going to look not only to my own interests, I'm going to look to their interests as well as I'm going to give up my life for them. Because I'm humble. And that's what humble people do. I just find that staggering. To God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit would do that for us. That's humility. That's the humility of the Godhead bringing about our salvation. If God can humble Himself, become a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, why can we not humble ourselves? Why can we not look to the interests of others in the body of Christ? If we would have this humble attitude, there would be tremendous harmony in the body of Christ. There would be tremendous unity because we would continually be elevating others, looking out for the needs of others instead of the petty little differences, which is so easy to do. I know I told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. Ligon Duncan talks about one time when he was on a college campus and he saw... He saw one of the students coming his way and he was holding tracks and he said to my, he, he said, I said to myself, I'm about to be witness to. And then sure enough, you know, one of the students came up to him holding some tracks and he said, are you a Christian? And Ligon Duncan said, yes, I am. He said, are you a born again Christian? He said, yes, I have been born again. He said, uh, uh, I didn't kind of know where to go next. He said, uh, are you a Calvinistic Christian? He said, Yes, actually, I'm a Calvinistic Christian too. He said, uh, you don't believe in the baptism of infants, do you? And he said, yes, I do. And he said, oh, I don't agree with that. Let's talk about this. And Ligon Duncan said, wow, we're on a campus with all these unbelievers. And here we have all these things in common. And he wants to focus on the one little area that we have of disagreement. Doesn't that so often the body of Christ? 
we, we have so much in common here. Let's celebrate that. And if we could see, we, the differences are minor. And I'm not saying they don't matter. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about them. We shouldn't debate about them. But we should put them in their proper perspective so that we can maintain the unity of the Spirit, which is so important. Paul says, if you would have the mindset of Christ, you would treat people differently and then there would be unity in the church at Philippi. But this is what we need to see. The unity that Paul is after is not ultimate. It's not his ultimate concern. It's his penultimate concern. If you're familiar with that word. In other words, it's a secondary ultimate. So what's the ultimate, ultimate concern? If I can phrase it that way so you understand what I'm saying. Ultimately, what he's after is at least two other things. He wants the believers to be able to do ministry together in the body of Christ. Back up to Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, See the unity again? Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not being frightened in anything by your opponents. Why does Paul want there to be unity in the body of Christ? So that they can do ministry together. A church cannot do ministry together when there's disunity. Paul wants the believers to be unified so that they can do ministry together. So that side by side, with the same love, the same spirit, the same purpose, the same mission statement, they can move forward and do ministry together. Paul knows if these believers don't come together, it's really going to affect the ministry that they're trying to do in the city of Philippi. So he wants them to come together, not just for the sake of getting along because that's nice, but he has a greater purpose. They need to get along so that they can do ministry together. So they can say to one, wow, it's great that we're on the same page. Let's go. And side by side, they can do ministry. And another purpose that Paul has in mind of why they need to be united, and that's for their testimony outside the church. Look at 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast or holding out the word of life. Stop grumbling. Stop complaining within the body because it's affecting your testimony. You think unbelievers aren't watching? You squabble among yourselves? You think they don't see? It has an effect on how bright your light is in the community. So if you're going to do ministry together, you need to be united. If you're going to have an impact, you need to be united. The same emphasis of unity was seen in Jesus' final prayer for His believers. In John 17, beginning at verse 20, praying to the Father, and He says, I do not ask for these only, talking about His disciples, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus wants all believers 
to be one so that the world will believe, hey, the Father has sent the Son. In other words, they will believe our message. It will add credibility to our message. Jesus continues on in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Wow, that's amazing. The glory that the Father had was given to the Son. And now the Son gives us that glory for what purpose? That we may be one even as they are one. Verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So again, Son is praying for unity so that the world will know that yes, Jesus really is the Savior of the world. God really does love those people. Look at the unity that they enjoy. So unity is important, not just because it's nice to be part of a group that gets along, but because of the impact that it has on ministry and on our testimony. If this is going to happen, we need to do what Jesus did. We need to count others more significant than ourselves. And we need to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the example of Christ. To thank that He would come to earth so that He could be a slave. So that He could die for us. Father, it really is an overwhelming thought. Father, may we be motivated by the example of Christ. Help us to walk in His footsteps. And may we know that we can do it, not if we try real hard, but we can do it as the Spirit enables us to do it. As Your grace empowers us to do it. So we pray that You would empower us to live this kind of humble life. In the name of Jesus, our humble Savior. Amen.